Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Aurora Cannabis Fourth Quarter Fiscal 2020 Conference Call for the three months ending June 30th, 2020. This is being recorded today, Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. Listeners are reminded that certain matters discussed in today's conference call or answers that may be given to questions asked could constitute forward-looking statements that are subject to the risk and uncertainties relating to Aurora's future financial or business performance. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in these forward-looking statements. The risk factors that may affect results are detailed in Aurora's annual information form and other periodic filings and registration statements. The company expects to file these documents before the end of this week, and they may be assessed via the Cedar or Edgar databases. Since we are conducting today's call from our respective remote locations, there may be brief delays, crosstalk, or other minor technical issues during this call. We thank you in advance for your patience and understanding. I would now like to introduce Mr. Miguel Martin, Chief Executive Officer for Aurora Cannabis. Please go ahead, Mr. Martin. Thank you, Operator, and good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for giving us your time. First off, let me say that I very much appreciate the Board's confidence in appointing me to the CEO role. I'm pleased to be working with the team on tactical plans to establish Aurora as a profitable, growth-oriented leader in the global cannabinoid market. I take my fiduciary responsibilities to our investors very seriously, and I'm determined to do everything that I can to enhance shareholder value. This begins with managing the business with a high degree of fiscal discipline, especially in the midst of a global pandemic. Over the last several days, I've had an opportunity to speak to a few of you in the investment community, but for the broader audience, perhaps it'd be helpful to provide a bit of my background. I've spent my entire career in sales, marketing, and leadership roles within the regulated CPG product industry. I started my career with Altria and spent about 18 years there, ultimately leading their sales group. I then went to become the president of one of the largest electronic cigarette companies, Logic, which was then sold to Japan Tobacco, the third largest tobacco company in the world. After that, I went to a startup and became CEO of Oliva CBD, currently ranked the number one CBD company in Nielsen, which was just recently acquired by Aurora. So I spent a lot of time working in fast-paced, constantly evolving, highly regulated, and fluid environments where adherence to compliance and testing is essential to success. I accepted the CEO job because I see an opportunity to quickly leverage my skill set in a regulated CBG product development here at Aurora. I'm fortunate to step into a company built with a dedication to science and a compliance-first approach. With strong execution, I expect to build a profitable business in Canada that we believe can be portable to other larger global cannabinoid markets. Having spent four months now at Aurora, I've seen the talent and industry knowledge that makes this company innovative and agile. Aurora will be a global leader in cannabinoids when the largest markets open up, and my job is to make sure that Aurora executes on that plan. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to Glenn Ibbett our Chief Financial Officer, to walk you through the financial results for Q4 2020. And then I'll be back to discuss some of our business plans going forward. Glenn? Yeah, thanks, Miguel. Uh, My pleasure to take our first earnings call together. I'm very excited about the vision you have for Aurora and the opportunity for Aurora to realize its full potential as we remain focused on becoming a profitable, growth-oriented leader in the global cannabinoid market. So good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's call. As you know, on September 8th, we provided a business update, including certain unaudited preliminary fourth quarter 2020 results. Therefore, I can be a bit briefer in my review of our financial results for the quarter. The figures I'll be going over today can be found in the press release we issued after market close today and are all in Canadian dollars. For our fourth quarter fiscal 2020, the period from April 1st to June 30th, 2020, Our net revenue came in at $72.1 million, while our total cannabis net revenue came in at $67.6 million. 
Our sales mix remains evenly split with the consumer cannabis segment delivering $35.3 million in net revenue and our medical cannabis segment delivering $32.2 million in net revenue. Total kilograms of dried consumer cannabis sold increased by 36% as compared to the prior quarter. But this was offset by an approximate 30% decrease in the average selling price per gram of dried cannabis flour. The daily special, our value brand, accounted for 62% of total net consumer revenue from flour in the quarter as compared to 35% in the third quarter. This is the primary factor impacting the decline in our average selling price per gram of dried cannabis flour. Consumer cannabis extract net revenue decreased by $1.5 million as compared to the prior quarter, driven primarily by a decrease in sales of our vape products. During the fourth quarter, the increase in our medical cannabis net revenue is comprised of an increase in Canadian medical sales of $0.7 million and an increase in our international medical cannabis business by 14% or $0.6 million. Pricing in both markets stayed strong and steady. We produced over 44,000 kilograms of cannabis in Q4 as compared to approximately 36,000 kilograms in the prior quarter. However, as we continue this aspect of our business reset, which consists of rationalizing our production footprint and closing a number of our smaller facilities, we expect our total production going forward to average about 35,000 kilograms per quarter. And of this production, 65% or more is expected to meet our top quality flower standard. We expect our facility rationalization to be accretive to our gross margins over time. While we continue to work on maximizing yields, potency, and other quality characteristics of our cultivation. Our forecast for inventory drawdown suggests that our flower production versus sales will reach a steady cadence over the next several quarters, while trim will also reach a steady state drawdown given our renewed focus on bait and other derivative categories. Our cash cost to produce per gram of dried cannabis sold improved to 89 cents, down 27% from the previous quarter. This is a slightly modified metric from previous quarters that reflects changes to our inventory costing methodology, which places a heavier weighting on our top quality flour and less on byproducts. Our low cost of per unit production is another lever that allows us to build brands across multiple pricing tiers while maintaining strong, healthy, and sustainable margins. Our adjusted gross margin before fair value adjustments on cannabis net revenue was 50% in Q4 versus 43% in the prior quarter. As you are well aware, we have been focused on prudently managing FG&A costs down to our targeted run rate of 40 to $45 million per quarter over the course of the second half of fiscal 2020. We are pleased to have successfully reduced FG&A costs, which includes R&D spending, from over $100 million in Q2 2020 down to $64.6 million in Q4 excluding approximately $3 million of non-recurring costs related to the business reset. I am further encouraged to tell you that we are now operating at our targeted quarterly SGMA run rate in the low $40 million range as of Q1. Clearly, reducing the run rate to the low $40 million range is very important as we strive to deliver positive EBITDA. We also believe this level of SGMA spend is quite sustainable and very capable of supporting a much higher revenue line. Our progress in continuing to reduce both overall and per unit production costs, as well as the significant decrease in SG&A demonstrates our commitment to manage Aurora to positive EBITDA for Q2 2021. These efforts, while certainly necessary, have clearly been disruptive to the organization. So while there is still more work to do, we are now in a position where most of the Aurora team can focus their attention on delivering Miguel's plan for growth. So pulling all of this together, Adjusted EBITDA in Q4 2020 was a loss of $34.6 million. That's $30.7 million if we exclude severance and non-recurring costs related to our business transformation. This is obviously a substantial improvement over the prior quarter adjusted EBITDA loss of $50.4 million, and it is the second consecutive quarter of improvement in our adjusted EBITDA. We expect this trend to continue through our first half of fiscal 2021 as we as, as we remain dedicated to achieving positive EBITDA in Q2. Turning to our balance sheet, as of June 30th, 2020, our consolidated cash position was $162 million compared to $230 million as of March 31st, 2020. 
cash use in Q4 was similar to that in Q3. However, the mix within cash use shows our significant positive progress. We used $53.3 million in cash to reduce our term debt and lease obligations, and we've made additional debt payments subsequent to quarter end. As of today, our outstanding term debt balance stands at about $110 million. In the quarter, we used cash to pay capital expenditure invoices of $32.8 million, which includes, of course, work uh, done in previous quarters. Uh, this is a $51.3 million reduction in CapEx quarter-over-quarter cash spend. Finally, cash used in operations for Q4 was $63.9 million. In the fourth quarter, we raised approximately $48 million under our at-the-market financing program and also financed a new prospectus supplement to enable us to raise an additional $250 million U.S. million under the ATM program. So as at the June quarter end, we had approximately $220 million U.S. available under our current ATM program. And this provides us with additional balance sheet support if required as we drive towards it achieving adjusted EBITDA profitability in the near term. So in this environment, we believe that access to capital is of paramount importance. However, we are focused on getting the cash flow positive as quickly as possible to alleviate the need for additional equity capital as much as possible. We have multiple levers to pull to achieve this milestone, including cost and efficiency opportunities in production sg that we've identified that should continue to drive costs lower over time. And of course, the successful execution of our tactical plans to improve market share in the Canadian consumer market. As we have demonstrated with our progress on the operational reset, we will continue to prudently manage our liquidity as we strive for positive EBITDA in the second quarter of fiscal 2021. The material run rate reduction in our CapEx and SG&A costs should provide comfort to our investors that the health of our income statement and balance sheet is of primary importance to us. We expect that our current cash position should be sufficient to fund operations to the point where positive EBITDA and free cash flow are achieved and sustainable. The remaining capital available under our shelf prospectus protects the company and our shareholders as a backstop in an uncertain environment. We'll use it judiciously for opportunities that deliver near-term payback and have, in fact, used it subsequent to our uh, June quarter end to fund the announced termination payment to the UFC. Since we are closing in on the end of Q1 2021, we thought it would be helpful to provide some forward-looking commentary on how the quarter is shaking up. Following the divestiture of non-core subsidiaries during fiscal 2020, our net revenue in Q1 2021 should be comprised exclusively of cannabis net revenue, which is expected to be between $60 million and $64 million, compared to the $67.5 million of Q4. We expect adjusted gross margin before fair value adjustments on cannabis net revenue to be within a range of 46 to 50%. So while growth in the consumer cannabis revenue is not expected in Q1 2021, our medical business is expected to remain steady. And we expect traction from our execution of consumer market share tactical plan, as Miguel will outline for you shortly, to show results beginning in Q2. However, in terms of progress positive EBITDA, the Q1 consumer revenue level is more than offset by adjusted gross margin that continued to stay strong due to a favorable sales mix and a significant reduction in SG&A levels to low $40 million range. So two housekeeping notes before I turn the call back to Miguel. First, as we announced in our business update on September 8th, Aurora and the USC have agreed to mutually terminate their partnership. We will therefore be making a one-time payment of US $30 million to terminate the contract in Q1. This is expected to allow us to reallocate more than $150 million to our core markets that would have otherwise been spent in fees, research costs, and marketing activation expenses over the next five years. Second, uh, we reached an agreement with our syndicate of banks regarding amendments for a secured credit agreement. These amendments provided us with additional flexibility, including a reduction in adjusted EBITDA milestones and including shifting the attainment of positive adjusted EBITDA into Q2 2021. And finally, a reduction in the size of the revolver facility to better align with our average receivables balance and thereby reduce standby fees. So to conclude, 
We have made many difficult decisions over the past few quarters and have leaned heavily on the talented and hardworking people in our organization. While it's been disruptive, it was also absolutely necessary. But now we feel that the company is unencumbered from distraction and can execute on the vision and strategy being developed by Miguel. So with that, I'd like to turn the call back over to Miguel and have him share some of his thoughts. Thanks for the financial summary, Glenn. I strongly believe that the long-term outlook for cannabinoids is very exciting, both in THC and in non-THC variants. And I think Aurora is uniquely positioned to realize opportunities in both segments. We're seeing the level of interest globally in medical systems grow, and Canada's consumer market is returning to a nice pace of growth. So there continues to be positive momentum in the industry, and our job now is to prove to investors that we can achieve profitability in our core markets. Building a base of free cash flow in our core business today will also allow us to invest globally for the multi-year investment horizon we see in cannabinoids. The history of global CPG brands is rooted in building capabilities and core competencies in their home markets that are then portable globally, and that is what we intend to continue to build here at Aurora. Having been with the company for about four months, I believe I have a reasonably firm grasp on what we need to accomplish across four main focus markets. First, the Canadian medical. Second, European and select international medical. Third, Canadian consumer. And four, U.S. CBD to be successful. Our domestic and international medical businesses are operating well and continue to track the plan. We will continue to invest in these areas to maintain and grow our leading share in these markets. However, given the recent lack of growth we've been experiencing within the Canadian consumer markets, let me lay out our initial tactical plans within this core market before taking your questions. First, leveraging traditional CPG models of consumer insights and data sets, including feedback from more mature markets such as the United States to identify consumer product opportunities. Second, reinvigorating Whistler, Sanrath, and Aurora our super premium and premium brands. Third, continuing to innovate and launch new offerings in key known margin accretive consumer categories such as vapor, edibles, and concentrates. And fourth, tactical sales execution, including addressing product availability, visibility, packaging, and a focus on higher margin product sizes and formats. On the first part, we've made investments in both syndicated and proprietary data sets this includes monthly information from more mature markets in the U.S. that assist us in modeling future ROI opportunities. These insights are expected to guide us in decision-making and effective execution. Second, I want to dispel the current thinking that the whole cannabis category will be commoditized. The data from Canada and other mature markets indicate that premium and super premium brands have been and will continue to be successful in all formats. We expect to refocus our dried flower business towards gross profit dollar pools and away from total revenue. One of the first steps we expect to take is building a more balanced portfolio, offering across multiple pricing tiers. We already have a collection of great premium brands, Aurora, Sanraf, and then Whistler as our super premium offering, so we need to emphasize all of our strong premium brands to balance out the total offering to our consumers. We also intend to better position these three premium brands across various formats to foster great, greater brand visibility and provide greater choices to the consumers. For example, Sanraf pre-rolls or a higher quality Whistler Vape. Third, we note that an important part of growth in such a new category, and this is a direct experience that I've had from my days at Logic and then at Reliva, is that project innovation and leveraging technology needs to be a core competency. Thankfully, we have a history of product development here at Aurora, and you should expect us to see us leverage that internal expertise into new segments of the market, particularly expanding our market-leading edible offerings into concentrates. Gummies represent a good example of where Aurora already has a leading market position, and we expect to allocate additional resources in the coming quarters to solidify and enhance our leading position and grow that format. These opportunities represent sources of strong gross dollar contribution, and where we have technical know-how, that gives us an advantage over our competitors. And finally, we'll be focusing on driving profitable growth. That means making sure that we're improving our execution with classic CPG sales, marketing, trade marketing, and customer engagement systems. 
This will improve in-stock conditions, visibility of key brands, customer relationships, and that has historically resulted in increased market share. Furthermore, we will explore aligning our packaging sizing with that regional demand to enhance our profitability. And where applicable, consider more flexible packing, packaging options to reduce costs. These are just a few of the low-hanging initiatives we'll be executing in the coming months that should continue to build strong brand awareness and affinity with consumers. While I've outlined just a few of the tactical plans we're putting to work for now in our Canadian consumer business, my focus is on ensuring that the entire Aurora team is executing to their respective plans. This includes continuously looking for more effective ways to connect with our consumers and opportunities to extract efficiencies from our operations. Throughout my career, I've implemented multiple examples of simple, well-executed plans resulting in outside gains in CPG categories. We operate in a category where market share is moving 500 basis points in a few months, so I feel strongly that our plan, executed correctly, should return us back to our leadership position in the Canadian consumer market. Glenn has already provided an overview of Q4 financials, including our focus on achieving EBITDA profitability in Q2, and I can certainly appreciate that key stakeholders are skeptical of forward-looking statements from Aurora. So all I can say is look to the data in the coming months to see the trajectory of our success in the Canadian consumer market. If you see progress in our premium brands and adjacent key categories like vape and pre-rolls, you know the plan is on the right track. Thank you for your time. I'd now like to ask the operator open the call for questions. At this time, we will be conducting a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. A confirmation tone will indicate your line is in the question queue. You may press star 2 if you would like to remove your question from the queue. For participants using speaker equipment, it may be necessary for you to pick up your handset before pressing the star keys. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up. Thank you. One moment while we pull for questions. Our first question comes from the line of Vivian Answer with Cowan. You may proceed with your question. Thank you. Um, good afternoon. Um, my question has to do, Miguel, with um, some of the portfolio um, initiatives that you just um, laid out. You know, given um, the increasingly um, large role that value is playing both in your portfolio as well as the category as a whole, as you look to improve your positioning and market share on um, Whistler, Sunraf, or and or Aurora, um, do you see the need for any pricing adjustments up or down to create um, a little bit more differentiation um, throughout your portfolio? Thanks. Well, Vivian, good afternoon, and thanks for your question. You know, I believe having the experience of 20 years in the tobacco, vapor, and other regulated product experience, that there really is an opportunity to have a more articulated portfolio. Um, you know, the focus on low-cost flour, I think, has created a lot of pressures. The reality is the Canadian consumer and other consumers really value the differentiation that this product can bring in some ways more so than other categories that I've worked in. Whether it's potency, terpenes, packaging, or background, I just think there's a greater opportunity. And there is evidence when you look at more mature markets like Colorado or California that consumers are willing to pay more. And so, yes, adjustments do need to be made um, in order to make sure we take advantage of that so that we do get a premium and premium margins. The other thing I, I will talk a little bit about that you're quite familiar with is the ecosystem of a brand and its equity. So Whistler is an example, I believe it's been underserved. It, it's always been a super premium flower product, organic in its very nature and finite. There are no reason that the cues that you see with a Whistler or Aurora or a Sanraf can't find its way to other formats, such as vapor, such as pre-rolls, such as concentrates. And as long as those keynotes of premiumness validate the economics, I think you can have a really strong ecosystem where you're always going to have a certain amount of value, but that the consumer is given you know, proper opportunities to work up you know, that value chain. And given the economics of you know, the difference in margin contribution between a super premium and a value product, you know, given my background with brands such as Marlboro, Copenhagen, Skoll, Logic, um, and even parts of the Reliva portfolio, I think I have a pretty strong background in finding a place um, for multiple brands throughout that portfolio. So we're excited about it. I will say it's one of the things that really attracted me to the job 
um, I am blessed with really great premium and super premium assets. And now we have to bring them to the consumers in the marketplace. Perfect. And just a quick follow-up for me. Um, as you've indicated, you know, we should keep an eye on, um, you know, just month-to-month um, revenues and, and development there as benchmarks of success. But as you think about market share, um, what is the charge for your team? Is it to improve Aurora's overall market share, or are you more focused on market share by price segments? Thanks. Thanks, Vivian. No, I'm absolutely, it's the latter. So, you know, I've lived in worlds and you've seen worlds where overall market share is not a true indicator of a company's profitability. We will be much more interested in the market share of our premium and super premium categories, much more interested in the market share um, of categories such as vapor and pre-rolls and concentrates that are margin accretive. And, you know, if others want to play in that deep discount flower business that really has compressed margins, in order to boost their overall company market share, so be it. Um, but this really is an effort to achieve profitability to higher margins. And so it will be the latter part of your example that will be a clear focus to us. And it's our target around EBITDA profitability um, and being margin accretive that it's much more the focus of the company than an overall company market share. Very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vivian. Our next question comes from the line of Pablo Suniak with Cantor Fitzgerald. You may proceed with your question. Thank you, and congratulations to your appointment, Miguel. Look, can we do just a quick recap in terms of what's happened over the last six months? And the reason I ask that, you are guiding for reg sales uh, to be down 10 to 20% in the September quarter, right? If I do the math, medical staying around 32. So reg in the September quarter is falling 10 to 20%. It fell about 10% in the June quarter, right? And uh, you talked about 60% of sales or more coming from your value brand daily special. So just what happened there? Was it that the value segment lost share? It doesn't seem to be the case. Why did daily special not work? And that's one question. And then the second one, when, when I look forward, um, yes, you're going to be focusing on the premium side and giving your background and the know-how you've talked about. I'm sure that that can, be, can materialize but you're going to have a 60% of sales or more that I suppose is going to be declining, right, because of the trend that we are seeing there, value. So this transition could, could take place for a while. I mean, we could be looking at flat sales for more than just one quarter, if you can, if you can highlight that. Thank you. Sure. Well, thank you, Pablo, and I appreciate your kind comments. You know, my opinion is the company had a tremendous success with Daily Special, and if you look at the February, say, through April time period, there was a massive amount of market share, um, that was taken, and they were a first mover into that value segment. Um, however, you know, others quickly followed. And when you're just playing on price, you know, it, it just becomes a you know, diminishing return. And so I think the company got a bit distracted by the success that they saw with that discount offering, which was daily special, um, which sort of uh, delayed other inputs, such as vapor, and pre-rolls, there is a lot of growth in the category. And then everyone else kept piling in. And because there was such a reliance upon that discount business in a lot of different ways, both on the growth side, on the sales side, on the trade marketing side, when that was just completely you know, pressed against by competitive pricing pressure, it became hard to pivot. Now, in terms of your point on timing, I guess I would raise sort of three points. First is the category is growing. Aurora has not participated in that category growth in a way that, you know, I think is respective of, of what I would expect of the company. And so the good news is the consumers continue to come in, stores continue to open, particularly Ontario, and Aurora needs to participate. Second thing is we are seeing brand shares moving very quickly. The consumer is in a very dynamic situation, unlike, say, domestic tobacco or other categories I've been in where 20 to 30 share points or basis points of share have moved in a month, you're seeing 200, 300 um, basis points of share moving a month. So you can do it with the right products, with the right execution. And so in terms of timing, we are going to be launching a stronger portfolio of vapor products. You're going to see a greater effort from us on pre-rolls, and you're going to see a deeper focus on our premium flower products. That plus a stronger focus on sales execution and engagement with the provinces and trade marketing um, should, you know, should allow for a quick move. I'm not, you know, here to debate exact timing, and I don't think it's fair to predict exactly when you're going to see X amount of market share by category.
but through headset data and other data that uh, clearly is available to you, I would keep going back to this. If you see progress from Aurora on its premium brands in the upcoming you know, weeks and months, and if you see progress in those categories that are margin accretive versus just overall market share led by low-cost flower, then we're on the right track. And everything I'm going to do and everything in my background, I think, puts me in a good place to drive that type of execution. Thank you. That's very helpful. And just a quick follow-up for Glenn. So, Glenn, uh, I mean, a PT that you have to use part of the ATM to settle the UFC, but I suppose we, can, we all understand that. Uh, but looking forward, you know, how do you think about the convertible bonds, right? They trade at about a 50% discount. Is, is that an opportunity? Would it make any sense, uh, financial sense and strategically also, to use part of ATM to, uh, to, to buy some of those bonds? I think on my math, that would be agreed. If you can touch on that, please. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Miguel. Um, so, listen, I mean, there is an awful lot going on at Aurora. I mean, we talked about the business transformation and the and the significant uh, effort and, and focus that took from the organization. Now we're pivoting to, you know, much more of a focus on delivering on the on the commercial success that uh, uh, Miguel has just outlined for you. But I'd suggest this. I mean, we've said before that one of the mindset changes we've made within the organization is much more financial discipline and prudence and, I'm going to say, kind of sophistication, if you will. Um, so it's not, um, you know, it's not an immediate concern. Uh, I recognize exactly what you're talking about, um, but it's not an immediate concern. Um, but we will look at all opportunities that if, if they make a positive sense for our, the company and our shareholders, and we will certainly consider them. Um, but, it, I mean, you should know that we're certainly mostly, uh, most of the organization focused on delivering what Miguel just outlined for you. Got it. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Michael Lavery with Piper Sandler. You may proceed with your question. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon, Michael. Can you talk about uh, some of the um, – thinking around the profitability target and what some of the key hurdles are and, and things to watch. And specifically, coming close already to the end of the first quarter, what's in place already? How much is there some things that you still need to achieve? Just kind of a sense of, of progress along that and, and what the key variables are. Yeah, Miguel, would you like me to? Yeah, why don't you start, Glenn, and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit forward-looking, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, listen, I mean, we, we've, we've done a lot of heavy work over the last uh, few quarters, and as you know, um, you know, with SG&A and, and continuing to main some, some, uh, keep some healthy margins in place, um, we fixed a number of pieces of the business that drive EBITDA, um, but we do have the consumer piece of the business that needs to be corrected, and Miguel told you a little bit about that, and I'm happy to tell you more, I'm sure. Um, but, but if you look at what we delivered in terms of EBITDA in Q4, it was just over negative $30 million, um, you know, taking out the severance costs. But that was while we were still carrying $64 million of SG&A costs. So as we stand in Q1, we're now running in the $40 million range. So you can see an immediate improvement in EBITDA of $20 million just simply from our, from our SG&A reset. Um, we do expect continued strong performance in the Canadian and European medical markets, um, uh, so really, the root deposit of EBITDA is exactly as Miguel's outlined. Um, you can watch that in the data over the coming months. Um, and our continued focus on fiscal prudence. I mean, we have done a lot of hard work on our cost structure, uh, but we'll continue to focus on, you know, incremental opportunities. Um, we've got the whole company in a different mindset now, and I know they're all looking for, you know, uh, you know places we can save costs, and it adds up. So, so it's, it's a different company. Um, we're positioned, I think, well, and the, as I say, the route forward is to uh, to deliver on some of these uh, premium categories and and even in, within the flower market and shift that product mix up to something that delivers, you know, more dollars to the gross profit line as opposed to simply just delivering revenue. Yeah, I, I mean, Mike, like, I guess the other thing I would say is when I look at those companies that have been successful of our competitors, they've executed, you know, a pretty thoughtful um, plan, but the execution level was tremendous. Um, and it looks a lot like CPG 
and I'm sure you can imagine who I'm talking about. So I don't think that the approach has to be, you know, particularly advanced or take a long time. And simplistic is not the right word because I have deep respect for our competitors as much as I want to be an aggressive competitor against them. But to Glenn's point, the company really was distracted, I think, in a lot of ways by the reset, um, both on the people side and on the production side. I think there was a lot of credence put together around overall flower share, um, but there were some investments made that with the right direction and with the right accountabilities and focus, and you're going to hear me say this over and over again, um, pushing the company into focusing on its premium assets in flower, vapor, and pre-rolls and implementing you know, classic CPG, sales, trade marketing, consumer engagement methodology. That's what's worked for others, and the rewards have been outsized. So I think we have the assets. Um, I believe we have the right people, and with the right plan and accountabilities, and to Glenn's point, we have enough resources we don't need CapEx. We don't need additional accountability because at the end of the day, Michael, as you know, there's only roughly a thousand stores in Canada. So if you can execute, you know, this plan successfully, you can move quickly with the right products in the right availability. And I could rattle off, you know, the five P's and on and on, but that's really going to be about execution. Um, but I'm confident that we have the product availability, the product quality, um, and the plan. Now, is it ever going to be quick enough? For everybody, no, but I think you'll find our steps to be thoughtful. Um, and if you look at what our competitors have done successfully, there's nothing sort of in our portfolio or in our capability set that gives me pause that we don't have what they have. Oh, that's, that's helpful, Caller. Thanks. Just on the, the portfolio mix, you mentioned the 62% value in, in 4Q. What does that look like 1Q to date? And, and do you have a target range for where you, that should be going forward? I, do, I don't have a specific target. I know my, some might say, well, that's helpful. I can tell you that there'll be a significant amount of focus put on Whistler, Sanraf, and Aurora, and that will be across the board. And as you know, with, with most great brands, particularly in a market where there's dark marketing or dark marketing um, you know, provisions, having the sales force, having the provinces, having the product um, distribution and availability and potency be focused on that does a lot of it. So you're going to see progress. You're definitely going to see a more balanced portfolio, um, and you're also going to start to see the development of this ecosystem. You know, Whistler will stand for things in the core categories, both in flower and adjacency. Sanraf will stand for things in those other categories, and so will Aurora in ways that maybe Daily Special doesn't in all those articulations. So my goal is to make progress um, and to have a defensible, articulated portfolio and you're obviously well aware, as we all are, of Marlboro Friday, creating a scenario where you so advantage the discount business that it creates you know, structural advantages over the premium and super premium business is really not a great place to be. And so we're going to start to reverse that. And those percentages and allocations um, will definitely advantage the high end of those purchases um, in those three or four primary categories. And I guess the only other thing I will say is when you look at things like vapor concentrates and pre-rolls, there's a lot of opportunity to bring some classic CPG elements in packaging and alignment and on vapor, many of the things that you're seeing in other categories on heat, not burn into consumer connectivity that allows the consumer to um, see value and therefore pay higher margins in a way that maybe traditional flour doesn't lend itself. So I'm pretty bullish on, on those opportunities. And I believe some of the experiences that I've had um, on combustibles and smokeless and vapor and other categories lend itself well to this regulated market. Okay, great. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Michael. Our next question comes from the line of David Kittlekeck with KTB Capital Markets. You may proceed with your question. Hi. Hi. Uh, uh, Frederico actually chiming in for Dave. Uh, so congrats on the quarter, guys, and thanks for taking my question. So uh, just to start, um, I mean, what you've seen in the market so far, how should we think about derivatives in terms of overall revenue mix that you're targeting, as well as in terms of margin potential compared to flower, maybe over the next fiscal year and also longer term? Glenn, you want to start that and I'll, I'll pick up the back side of it, or would you like me to start? Um, yeah, maybe I'll start and I'll add in some, some dollars. Right. But it's, it's, 
So I, I think if I understand your mix and how we should think about adjacent categories. So from a mix standpoint, you know, due to the fact that so much production and capacity was brought online, you clearly were going to see a glut of flour and particularly what we would call, you know, lower quality flour. And that would be lower potency and terpenes and, and then the higher gram sizes. And that's always going to have a lower margin profile. And, and there'll be a place for that. But as we think about, you know, higher margin offerings, it's not just, you know, Whistler, San Rafa, and Aurora, but also those, you know, packing sizes like three and a half and seven gram um, that when done right, give the consumer additional value. And so, you know, we've, we've laid out the historic margins um, and obviously talked about our medical margins. I think as you think about adjacent margins, there's two things really to consider, and I'm not going to give you the precision of the answer that you may want, but I'll give you the sense of it. When you look at um, pre-rolls, vapor, and uh, edibles, they are margin accretive, particularly as you offer premium items. The second aspect of it is excellence around extraction or in other ways to use the byproduct of your flower production facility also creates economic value or margin creative opportunities. So that environment, when you can be having a, you know, a strongly articulated uh, flower portfolio, as well as also being in a situation where the byproduct can find its way into margin accretive products, and you can have a fully articulated portfolio where you know, you're doing you know, a decent amount of your business in super premium, a strong amount of your business in the premium, um, and you have a necessary amount in the discount, that clearly um, should have significant margin impact as well as the impact of selling higher margin items such as premium, vape, uh, pre-rolls, and concentrates. And if you look at the U.S., you see a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, and that's not a national framework. We see brands developing in California and Colorado in some tough markets. And so clearly if they can do it there, it definitely demonstrates that we can do it in Canada um, and you know, we feel good about our opportunity. And if you look at the equity scores and you look at sort of the awareness of those premium brands we're blessed with, I'm bullish that we can move up the margin chain in flower and in those other adjacent categories. Now, I'll just add a, a little bit of maybe an example for a little bit of flavor. You've heard Miguel talk about margin accretive and premium assets. Um, if we used um, a like a 3.5 gram pack of our Whistler flour and compared that to a 3.5 gram of the typical discount flour from what we see in the market, that package of Whistler will be able to deliver 10 times or more the gross profit dollars that the discount flour would. So when we say we're blessed with some premium assets and we're going to you know, focus on the margin creative. This isn't, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to replace all the, this, the daily special revenue with an equal amount of, of Whistler revenue, although I'd be delighted if we did. But, um, but we're really, you know, trying to be a more sophisticated and, as Miguel said, uh, more of a CPG-oriented company that is really focused on delivering EBITDA. That means gross profit dollars. So, so that margin accretive and premium across the brands, but also within flour, can be incredibly important our execution here over the next uh, number of quarters. And so, you know, the mix, I think, if I can direct you to anything, please pay attention to the mix, as Miguel's outlined, um, in those categories rather than just pure sort of revenue market share allocation. Um, that will be the indicator of our success. Okay, thank you. No, that's helpful. And just a follow-up for me, I'm more of a broader question here um, in terms of international markets. Um, I mean, you've talked a lot about the Canadian market, so, but how, how does that, how does the international market fit into your strategy right now? So, from an international standpoint, international revenue today continues to be largely from the German market, and that has been a consistent performer for the past few quarters, and we expect it to show growth, you know, into the future. We've had success, you know, in the German market. We're actually number one provider of flour, and we continue to see opportunities in the oil market. And we're close to achieving some really important regulatory milestones, including GMP certification in our operations in Denmark. Now, that facility in Denmark will allow us to ship from Denmark to Germany and the rest of the EU and other parts of the world, particularly those parts of the world that really look for GMP products. Um, so, you know, we're bullish on the international market. We're not going to play everywhere. I think you're going to find us to be opportunistic. But the one thing I will say about the international market that also I think speaks to other opportunities 
is it takes a lot of investment and it takes a lot of um, compliance experience and it takes a lot of thought to be successful to the high standards that these international markets have. Once you build those capabilities, which we continue to do in the Canadian market, in Germany and other markets, it becomes very portable. And I know everybody wants to talk about the high potential of the U.S. and these other markets, but clearly as these larger markets come online, those companies, particularly the successful Canadian LPs that have demonstrated expertise in the Canadian market, interacting with Health Canada, and in these other markets that are highly um, you know, compliant and require a lot of infrastructure and thought, puts us in a great position. So we'll continue to be opportunistic. We feel good about the international business. We feel that medical, in many cases, leads to rack opportunities, and that muscle memory that we're developing there can be portable in a way that is definitely um, advantageous to us as these markets continue to open. Okay, our next question comes from the line of Andrew Carter with Stiefel. You may proceed with your question. Hey, thanks. Good afternoon. So my question is just kind of going back to what was implied in the consumer performance. You've got a stable medical business, um, and perhaps you might want to comment on on Reliva as well as how that's trending if in line with acquisition. It's a pretty, pretty significant step down, and, and the step down is well ahead of kind of what we're seeing in the consumption data. So a couple questions to that are, uh, you know, are you seeing anything? Is there any disruption in the orders from the provinces? I thought Ontario would be picking up with stores. Are you missing orders because you talked a lot about execution on pre-rolls, concentrates, et cetera? Could you help us with any more clarity, kind of what's going on beyond that? Sure, Andrew, I'd be happy to. So, I mean, you can see it in the headset data. You know, the company made a big push in the discount, um, you know, in that February to April time period. Uh, built a lot of share. Everybody piled in. Um, it became sort of a, a bit of a race, you know, who had the lowest price product. The company did not have, you know, other um, products, whether it's in the premium flower business or vapor or pre-rolled. And because those categories also grew um, at an exceptional rate, Aurora did not keep pace with category growth, lost share, and therefore the step down. So I don't you know, I, I'm not trying to be defensive. I just, I think you can see what the opportunities were. You can see one competitor in particular um, that did really well. They had a fully articulated portfolio, high levels of availability and visibility. Um, they did well in a finite number of those adjacent categories, particularly vapor and pre-rolls. Um, and that's the model we're going to follow. So it's going to be, you know, I know I'm going to sound repetitive, but it has worked. It will work. Um, I think the benefit we have now is we had a bit of a distraction with the reset and the factory stuff going on. We do have great brands. We do have the products coming online. Um, and at the same time that you see Ontario and others. So when you look at the provinces, the provinces operate like any other wholesaler in the U.S. They don't, you know, play favorites. They want to make money. They want to have a you know, certain amount of days on hand and they want to service their retailers. So as brands, you know, in this dynamic category, They've done a pretty good job, particularly Ontario and others. And so when you don't have the offerings and your brand is declining share, it's less about the execution. I'm not worried about that. If we have the right offerings and the right product categories, particularly in premium and super premium, which they're also incentivized to push because they make more money on it, then we'll be there. So I'm not worried about that. If we can take care of what we need to take care of, and I feel good we will, um, we'll have the support of the provinces who operate as wholesalers and will have the support of the retailers. And again, I, I just highlight the finite number of retailers. I mean, I've worked in systems where you're talking about hundreds of thousands of retailers. Um, this is about a thousand. And so with proper sales execution, which I have a long history of um, and engagement, I don't think there's anything systemic or systematic in the provinces or the retailers that holds us back. We just did not participate. We lost share because um, we didn't have the right premium offerings in flower, and we, and we weren't there on vapor and frills. Those things will be fixed. Um, as for Reliva, sorry, go ahead. No, that was it. That was going to Reliva next. Go, you go ahead. Great. So obviously, I know a lot about Reliva. Reliva, 99 you know, plus percent of its sales are brick and mortar, and you might ask during a COVID environment why. Um, two reasons. One is um, because the retailers that we partner with, and we're exclusive with some of the largest retailers in the country. We're in over 23,000 stores, which I think may be the most. Um, 
they've taken a really dim view at those that have pivoted uh, to online sales. And so we decided to play some long ball and not do that. Um, secondly, we're very bullish on, you know, what we've heard out of the FDA. And I don't think that hinges on the November political decision. You have Senator McConnell, you know, on the Republican side, who's the biggest cheerleader of uh, industrial hemp. And obviously it's been a good issue for the Democrats. So, but the reality is as a retail driven company, COVID, um, you know, really hurts Reliva. Now, given its variable nature and not a lot of fixed costs, it's not losing money, but it's not making a material amount of money. Now, the deal, as, as was announced, contemplated a performance-based metric. So if Reliva doesn't, you know, perform, that back end of the payment to the shareholders, obviously, you know, will not be there. But it's a wonderful optionality. And I will remind people that to this day, Reliva is the number one ranked Nielsen uh, company and number two in IRI. And so it's wonderful optionality. And when the FDA goes forward, those companies with a history of compliance and in brick and mortar will win. And I think Reliva will be a wonderful asset. And even at its most conservative estimate, CBD represents over $1.8 or $2 billion in retail revenue. So the real hidden gem in this whole thing, and when we talk about global cannabinoids, is leveraging Aurora's science and innovation on the non-THC parts of the portfolio which could be bigger than the THC parts of the portfolio, particularly with positive FDA action in the U.S. Fair enough. And some of this, some of this quarter, obviously, was, was some cuts and, and the focus on cost savings. So mm -hmm. in terms of the, as you're trying to get back in the game, I guess you've got another uh, round of restructuring. Kind of what comfort can you give that you, that, that you have the right investments in place and, and perhaps investments don't even need to go higher from here uh, and that you can successfully execute these restructuring and grow market share here? And I'll pass it on. I mean, we don't, there's not, if you look at CapEx or other investments, I mean, what I've described, you know, can be handled by the production facilities, uh, the marketing and sales organization and everything that we have. So we're going to be nimble and more agile, um, but we, from an infrastructure standpoint, I don't see an added investment required. And as the, you know, category continues to move, I think you'll find us to be, you know, pretty agile around it. My background, you know, has been, you know, lower fixed and higher variable. Obviously, this category and this company is a little bit different, but we'll do what it takes um, to be competitive in the marketplace. But the simple answer to your question is there's no big investments we need to make to be competitive in premium flour, vapor, pre-rolls, or concentrates. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's no, that. I mean, it's been a massive change from where we were a, a number of quarters ago and so me calling the question are we at a sustainable level we have you know absolutely believe that current level is is, is sustainable and certainly capable of uh, supporting a, a, a much bigger revenue business um, what happened I think is that we had to strip it down to the core markets there was a whole lot of non-core um, assets and, and distraction so stripping away as you said we divested a number of non-core businesses taking complexity of the business uh, rationalizing our production footprint again taking complexity out of the business and really focusing on uh, focusing on something that should be um, fairly straightforward um, you know we we produce and deliver uh, a, a number of brands in, across the categories so you know the better best of Miguel's world um, and we can play in a number of different categories that all derive from you know cannabis and and and, and extract so it's a it's a uh, a fairly simple conceptual business, and it, we had made it very complicated because of all the optionality we've given ourselves over the years. So it's time to take all that out. We're down in a, in a nice level right now. I think is is very sustainable um, over the next number of quarters. Thanks. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Tammy Chen with BMO Capital Markets. You may proceed with your question. Great. Thanks for the question. Um, first, I just want to ask, uh, can you elaborate a bit more on some of the material weaknesses in certain internal controls that was referenced in an earlier press release and how you will remedy these? Yeah, absolutely, Tammy. Um, you know, this was our first year as a SOX um, uh, reporter. Um, and, and quite frankly, um, with a company such as ours that's been built through, through acquisition, it was a monumental challenge, um, and then you throw the COVID pandemic in on top of that, where everybody then had to scatter and start working remotely. Um, it was it was it was incredibly complex. The material weaknesses, and you'll see them in our MGNA that we'll file in a couple of days. 
for the most part, revolve around the the, the, um, the number of IT systems that we have. Many of them scheduled for decommissioning, um, but that were slowed down as part of business transformation and um, and quite frankly, COVID and things like that. So we ended up at the year end still using some systems we hadn't expected to use. So there there are some you know some issues uh, you know like like minor issues and in, in uh, I should say minor but issues of you know, segregation of duties within a within the system. So there was nothing in there that um, that causes us pause. We were actually, I say, somewhat comforted that a lot of it's been remediated already, and the remediation plan for the remainder, uh, for the most part, revolves around finishing the, the full implementation of the ERP system that's been underway for a while now. Um, it did not result in any material errors. There's no restatement. So I'd have to say the outcome of this, given the environment. Even the first year of SOX in an incredibly uh, complicated, um, you know, uh, company behind the scenes at that time um, was a pretty good outcome. Again, no, no errors, no, no, no restatements, and a, and a clear path forward to remediate it this year. Okay, got it. Thank you. And my follow-up is um, just going back to the, you know, the premium strategy, Miguel, that you're talking about. I'm just wondering when you talk about this. I mean, what is it specifically that you have your eye on that consumers are willing to pay up for? And, you know, what are your data analytics telling you? Because, I mean, every company or licensed producer sort of says a similar thing, that it's the high THC, a lot of terpenes um, on the vapes, good quality hardware, no leakage. I mean, surely you won't be the only one that can potentially succeed on this. So I'm just trying to understand going forward when you're trying to push this premium strategy, I mean, is there something more to it that sets up a more proprietary or defensible moat for you in this segment? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, first and foremost, it's being done today, right? Not everyone's just selling discount products. So the environment, the consumer, uh, the trade all have had an aptitude for premium products. Now, the trade's an important one, and it's one I've spent most of my career on. If you talk to the retailers in the provinces, they want to sell more premium products. So there's finite space in the retail stores. There's finite uh, delivery windows. So everyone sort of wants that. Um, in terms of what we're going to do different, you know, Aurora has a long history in strong cultivation and, you know, a variety of other things that bring there. So when you look at the consumer cues of what they're willing to pay more for, higher potency, higher terpenes, consistency, brand quality, um, you know, strains, some of that IP and genetics that, you know, we see that has been positive with other companies and us in past iterations. So Whistler for a long time has been a super premium brand where the company has been able to sell everything that it's been able to make because of that strong organic nature. Um, and so we're going to do more with that and bring those cues into vapor. Now I'll be more than happy to spend a lot of time on all the reasons why someone is more willing to pay more for a super premium, premium vapor experience. You can see it in packs. You can see the non-THC products, whether it's the technology, the materials, the ecosystem, the software. Those are all things that I have a long history with. On pre-rolls, you see in California and Colorado, the premiumness of the input, the paper, the packaging, the branding. I mean, these are all sort of things you can do, but it's being done today. I mean, so if you look across the environment in Canada, there are companies being successful, both big and small, with premium offerings in all the core categories. I think the sort of stable of brands we have, the quality and the consistency we're going to be able to put out, a really laser focus on the trade, which I've spent a lot of time on, in a finite number of stores, um, given where we were, which was not a focus on those items, and a real push on um, daily special as a discount proposition, and the results we had. I think you're going to see a big delta, um, and we'll see. I mean, take a look at the headset data, and I think you'll know quickly how we're doing. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Our next question comes from the line of Matt McGinley with Needham. You may proceed with your question. Thank you. You took $135 million in inventory impairments in the fourth quarter, but you produced 44,000 kilograms in that quarter, and, and you alluded to the fact that you expect inventory to continue to build for a number of quarters. I think you said it around 35,000 kilograms per quarter. 
um, but you're you know, you're selling it in, in, the, in the fourth quarter, at, you know, under under 17,000 kilograms. So I guess there seems, still seems to be a, a disconnect between the inventory build and and, and uh, what the sales levels would be, especially given the the shift to premium product, which presumably would mean you'd be sell, selling fewer kilograms. So I guess what what causes you to reach equilibrium equilibrium on the inventory? And do you feel you're at any risk of taking, you know, additional impairments in, in the future, given given there's such a disconnect between what you're producing versus what you're selling? Well, a couple a couple of things will impact that as we look forward. Um, one, there's, there's a note uh, that we may add in our press release, and I alluded to it in my my remarks, uh, and then be more, of course, in the MD&A and financials. But um, we took a look at, you know, we, we continue to understand the market better and better, and which which products um, are, are in demand, which uh, you know, which need uh, how much we need on hand. So a lot of the write-off of June 30th was there. There was some older, slower-moving product from from a number of quarters ago, um, but there was a lot of it was trim, and so we took that down. And then we also took a look at the way we allocate our costs within our inventory. So uh, we've we've uh, changed the methodology to put a much heavier weighting on. On flour and much much reduced weighting on trim. I mean that makes probably a lot of sense, and I I know one or two of our peers have taken that step, and I expect everybody will have to at some point. Uh, but what that does for us is a couple of things. Um, you know, in terms of volume, um, we do expect that um, you know with some of the execution and operational improvements that we're in the midst of making. Um, that we should see traction, you know, across the, the categories that they use flour. And, and don't misread the remarks, I think. It's not that we don't expect to continue to shift, you know, volumes of, you know, into a discount market. It's, we just need a much more balanced portfolio. Um, and I think, you know, as Mayall said, is, you know, maybe I'll take a look at, you know, which pack sizes, you know, deliver the most profit and things like that. But it's not that, you know, we exit that. We just need a balance in our portfolio. So we still expect that. Uh, to consume volume, and quite honestly, you know, Miguel said we didn't participate in category growth. I would say that this market is starting to get, um, you know, it's getting plenty big enough, and you know, our expectations, and certainly what we see from the market expectations, is that it should continue to grow. So we think by simply just stepping up, executing better, participating in market growth, and maybe you know, over participating in those categories we want to be, we should, um, you know, see an increase in the volumes um, consumed. But but the other just subtle point is that um, there, we won't be building up uh, much in terms of dollar value on our balance sheet related to trim because it's got a very low cost allocation now. Got it. And, and the EBITDA guidance for the for the second quarter, you expect that to be positive. You know, I assume the SG&A doesn't have any big variance there. But what gives you the confidence that the revenue or the gross margin is going to increase given that you know both have declined in in, in the prior quarters? Did did you see trends improve in, in September, or is this kind of all on the come as the portfolio is repositioned into, into your uh, physical second quarter? Um, yeah. Um, well, let me start, and then Miguel will, uh, I'm sure, add some support to this. Um, you know, so so Miguel arrived in the CCO chair beginning of July, and then was promoted to CEO shortly thereafter. He's the right guy with the right experience and, and, and certainly a track record of executing in exactly this situation. So, you know, we 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 have to, you know, and we are in the process of kind of, you know, just make arresting the, the decline that we saw over the last few months and getting back into to, to even keel there. And then there's a number of initiatives, specific initiatives that are focused more on the higher margin dollars. So let me call it, um, let me, I'll use a term you probably hear more, more from me in the future, quality revenue. So as opposed to just revenue, quality revenue to me means that that delivers a healthy uh, gross profit dollar as opposed to simply just, you know, a, a gross margin percentage. Uh, I use the example of Whistler, and that's an extreme example where it delivers 10 times the gross profit dollars that the uh, discount uh, brand might. But but that is that our route forward in putting dollars on the bottom line is not to sell more of you know a, a large pack discount um, brand which delivers some dollars but but not a ton. It's to to play in the category and deliver real dollars to the gross profit line. So so the initiatives that we have underway are those. They're the ones that deliver real gross profit dollars, uh, not just percentage. Uh, so that. That means quality, healthy revenue, and that's the focus, and that's the, that's the piece that needs to be. We need 
traction there. And as Miguel said, you can watch the headset data or other market data that you get, and you should see us performing in those categories. And that's a that's a different revenue dollar than the stuff you know that the discount um, category delivers. Uh, you know, all revenue dollars are not created equally, um, and that's a, an important part of our reset and uh, refocus going forward. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I'm, the only thing I'd add is, you know, you see, you see where the SG&A is going. Um, you've heard what the plans are. I mean, I will still say, I mean, even with the amount of discount business the company did in the previous quarter to have the margins land where they landed, um, you know, is a good indicator that there's upside there. And so, you know, the math isn't too complicated. I, I think, you know, our indication are is we execute the premium plan with these adjacent products. Um, we should get what we need on that side of it. Yeah, great. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of today's question and answer session. I would like to turn the call back over to Mr. Miguel Martin for closing remarks. Thank you so much. And, and I want to thank everybody for joining today's call. I'm honored to be a part of this team, and I really look forward to leading Aurora to success. I hope you and all your families um, are safe in this world. We wish you all the best. Be good. This concludes today's conference. You may disconnect your lines at this time. Thank you for your participation. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.